Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When life becomes unsustainable and unbearable as it is, all the danger and unknown consequence in running away becomes somehow worth the risk. The hostilities and vulnerability and unknown consequences can all feel worth it. It's a journey that means giving up any semblance of safety in order to gain something a lot more valuable, a complete and irreversible shift in self-knowledge. As it turns out, the most useful tool for that journey is the power of sensitivity and most of all perseverance, an instinct that all of our doubts can be utilized and applied to purposes well beyond what could be known in the moment and that our pain can be given a job and put to work. I'm Leslie Feist, and welcome to Pleasure Studies, a storytelling project about our interior lives. Each episode holds up multiple stories to one light to get a glimpse at the common ground that's under our common struggles. My mom and I were born in a poor farmland in Colombia. She was a teen mom. She had me at a young age. And it was really difficult in the 90s. There was also a lot of civil unrest, war, violence in Colombia at the time. She wasn't able to finish school, struggled to make ends meet. So she sold everything and got a ticket to come to New York. I was a really confident young kid. And it wasn't until other people around me started to tell me that the way that I was behaving, the way that I was dressing or talking or moving was wrong, that I started to have self-doubt. I suffered from extreme panic attacks. I suffered from severe anxiety and couldn't leave my flat all during my 20s. I'd call ambulances for breathing difficulties I never had. Doctors would just try to fob me off on diazepam. You know, I drank to try and cope. I'd have to go for a drink before I'd go for a drink. And that became a very vicious cycle. My mom had friends that lived in New York already. They encouraged her to migrate to the United States and, you know, they would help her find a place to live and, and somewhere to work. And it wasn't until we landed in JFK that she understood we would be undocumented. It wasn't until I had my aunt pull me around the back of the house, four years old, when we were playing t-ball with all of the neighborhood boys. Middle of the summer, all of us in the neighborhood with our shirts off. Four years old, she pulls me around the back of the house and says, you can't run around like that. You're a little girl. You have to put a shirt on. And so I started to get these messages. Don't wear your hat backwards. People will think you're a little boy. You can't skateboard. Little girls don't do that. I didn't think I could do theater because of my panic attacks. I didn't think I could live alone. I always thought I'd have to marry some nice guy who'd look after me. And I had to medicate myself against it. 
and that just wasn't sustainable. Ultimately, it was always about not facing my deepest terrors, and my deepest terror is myself. I just didn't want to tell people. I didn't think it was anyone's business. I think just like any other secret, something that you're raised to live in fear about, live ashamed about, it's not something that you automatically just learn how to talk about in public. It's interesting to think about it in terms of running, that for so long, I felt like I was running away, that I was hiding who I really was. And part of that was that I didn't have the language, I didn't have the terminology to describe that in a way that made sense to other people. But part of it was that I didn't want to address it myself. So for the past 15 years, I've dedicated my life and life work to Samuel Beckett. I was first cast in a role, a monologue called Not I, which is famously difficult. It's written in a stream of consciousness, a rapid stream of consciousness, with so many repetitions and non sequiturs, and also it's spoken at the speed of thought. Out into this world, this world, tiny little thing before it's time and go for what? Girl, yes, tiny little girl, into this, out into this before This it's kind of garble that you can't understand. Unheard of, he having vanished thin air and us in a button of his britches. She similarly eight months later. But it cannot tick. stop. So no love spared that. No love such as normally vented on the speechless infant. It's not no, even no, a linear no, stream no, of consciousness. Of kind, no love of any kind at any subsequent stage. It's a typical affair. Nothing of any note till coming up to 60 when, what? 70 It's a cacophony of sounds and voices and interruptions. A few steps then stop, stare into space, then on a few more stop and stare against one, drifting round when suddenly gradually all went out. All that early April morning light and she found herself in the what? Who? No, she! I first performed it years ago. I got cast when I was 23 or something like that. I don't know how I did it. Not I drove my predecessor mad. She had nervous breakdowns playing that role and I've been pretty close. Other actors have tried this role and they've come to me weeping. I couldn't do it. I lost my mind. Suicide started and thoughts of suicide were gnawing at me like a metal stitch and happening earlier and earlier in the day. The stress and the anxiety it caused, it's so taxing. So I, I guess I always knew I was an immigrant and I didn't understand I was undocumented until... I got to high school because there's all these like passages, those transitions, you know, people getting their first jobs. But it didn't bother me until I found out I couldn't apply for financial aid to go to college. I Part of me didn't believe it. So when I was a senior, I took an essay and my resume and my awards and I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice to convince them to help me go to school and the financial aid advisor Opened the door and, you know, welcomed me into the office and asked for my social security number right away. She didn't ask for my name. She didn't ask for any other identifying information. And I told her I didn't have a social security number. She got upset, told me I was wasting her time. If I didn't have the money to pay for school out of pocket, then there was no point in me being there. This woman who I thought was supposed to help guide you just pushed me out. When I was in high school and I was playing all these girls' sports, it was great because I made friends through sports and, and no matter how weird people thought that I was off the court, they liked me because I had a great jump shot. But people still looked at me like I was other. I had a hard time navigating women's spaces, an increasingly hard time going into women's locker rooms, going into women's restrooms and 
even lining up at the starting line of a race, which is separated by gender. I just had this growing sense that I, I was out of place, that I didn't belong there. And when I started to race in triathlon and started to do well, I would do well in my races and not want to share those results because I didn't want people to know that I won in the, in the women's division. Uh, not only does it not feel right, it, it's sort of starting to be painful. If people would look at me and couldn't clearly identify me as male or female, it was almost a hostile experience. People would actually say, are you a guy or a girl? And that was a phrase that I heard my entire life, that my identity and my appearance was so confusing to people that they felt that they had to confront me about it. After I first performed Not I, I never knew I would perform it again. But I had just kind of decided to become conscious. I'd kind of stopped drinking. I knew I'd run out of options running. I was going to stop hopping into new relationships. I was going to stop running and leaving countries. And through a series of coincidences, I was asked to put it on. And I was so driven by the project that I forgot that I am this person who suffers from extreme panic attacks until just opening night. And I started suffering from panic attacks backstage. I didn't realize it. I was shaking so much they had to bring in a heater for me and put coats over me. And I was shaking and shaking and shaking. This was 2009. The DREAM Act was around, but I didn't know about it. But there was a immigration workshop and it was titled, it was very vague. It was like immigrants in New York or something like that. I just thought, okay, you know, I'm an immigrant in New York. Let, let me see what this is about. So I went by myself and they were talking about the DREAM Act the federal piece of legislation they were pushing for. I'm sitting there, and it's the first time I hear about the DREAM Act. It's the first time I hear about other undocumented people in New York besides me and my mom, you know, and, and, and whatever friends she had made. So fast forward a couple of months, when I find out I don't qualify for financial aid, they announced that they had a scholarship for undocumented students in New York. That paid for my first semester at John Jay. I felt like I had to protect myself. And so I think that in college, I built a lot of walls. If I could have skated by, made it through minimally interacting with other people, that was okay with me. I knew who I was as a person, but I had so much negativity and almost violence coming at me because of my identity not matching what people thought that I should be. Because I had put up so many walls and I, and I kept everybody at an arm's length, I was afraid to let them in. I was afraid to let them know that I was queer. I was afraid to let them know that I didn't feel like or identify as a woman. And I think it came to a point where I, I couldn't do that anymore. I needed to live more fully. You know, the main voice is you can't do this. This is impossible. What were you thinking? You're mad. This doesn't make sense. This won't work. Change it. Abort. Run. I tend to be that little kid who first ran away first. It was like as if I never developed emotionally from the age I started running or hiding. And I remember there was an actor who guided me through this, an older actor. He said, you know, this is fear, you know, and you can't underestimate stage fright. First the bowels will go, then you think you have cancer, then you think you're going to die, and then, you know, and he said, and you breathe deeply. 
and say, yeah, yeah, but it's just, uh, uh, I've got this hernia. And he went, yeah, yeah, I get those. So what's the worst that, that, that can happen? Well, I, you know, it could burst and I could hemorrhage and, and then choke my own blood and die. Uh, he'd say, well, yeah, I, uh, that's a possibility. And so what are you going to do until that happens? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say my lines. Yeah, kiddo, you just say your lines. We were part of a network of other immigrant rights organizations in different cities. And there's this huge mobilization for the DREAM Act, for immigrant organizing in different cities. And I went to several national convenings. These are like the first times that I'm traveling, going out of the city and, you know, my mom is freaking out. She doesn't want me to be involved. So we're at this conference in the beginning of 2010 and undocumented youth from Chicago said that they wanted to implement a lot of the coming out strategies from the LGBTQ movement. Coming out for your immigration status and coming out of the shadows. The way that they spoke about what they wanted to do inspired me and motivated me. We came back to New York. We started spray painting shirts that said undocumented, putting out flyers and trying to get people to come and sign up to share. As an adult, when I was a little more androgynous or masculine presenting and, and I would be out in public and have someone call me he, it started to feel more and more like a fit. At the same time, as people would call me she, I would feel troubled by that. I knew that I would be more comfortable if I transitioned, but for me to transition and be competitive in athletics, I didn't know if it was possible. I didn't know any transgender athletes who continued to compete after a medical transition. And I also knew it'd be a lot of jumping through hoops. And I didn't see the policies for transgender athletes at that time. So I delayed my transition for over a year simply because of the sports piece. But it came to a point where it was more important for me to be comfortable in the 90% of my life where I wasn't doing sports than to really focus on, will I be able to achieve high marks in races the coming out of the shadows day was in front of the immigration building in New York City in Federal Plaza. This is the building where people go to be detained. This is the place where immigration officers work and are outside. We set up a microphone and a speaker outside of the building on the sidewalk. We got in a line and everyone was going to take the microphone and share that they were undocumented in public. And everyone was so scared and shaky, but we just huddled together and supported each other, sharing. The slogan was undocumented and afraid. First said that I was going to compete as male, people sort of laughed at me. There had been no other example of a trans man competing with men at a high level. As a result of that, I kind of got a, a pass. I got a green light to go ahead and try whatever I wanted to try. You, oh, you want to play with the boys? Okay, go ahead. Um, you're not going to do well anyway. Was someone saying, if you take a top-performing female athlete and pull them over to the men's category, they will just be middle-of-the-pack. He's going to be a middle-of-the-pack guy. Let him compete. And that did not sit well with me. That's really what I use as inspiration every single day. Over the 
all of those doubts can be converted into something. All of that heightened, heightened sensitivity that I was born with can be used for some purpose. I was proud of myself for coming out, but I wasn't entirely ready to speak to media or that kind of stuff. Like the outside looking in, you know, everyone wants to consume our stories. So it was always a constant battle to try to have boundaries. And there's always the backlash that comes with being more public about these things. A lot of us have had to deal with a lot of hate mail and hate comments online. And, you know, social media allows for, for internet trolls, you know, to be more anonymous and access you quicker. Um, and then now, fast forward a couple of years later, like you can Google me. So all of that hyper visibility isn't always the safest, right? In my first race that I ever did as male was a Ironman race, Ironman Florida, which is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, 26.2 mile run. Not a short race, a, a super challenge for the most fit of competitors. I remember being in the middle of that race and just being so thrilled that it was the first time that I could really show up as myself. And then also thinking, this is voluntary. I signed up for this. No one's making me do this. Living my life every day as a trans person is hard. This is not hard. And so on the run, in the darkest of moments as I'm going into my 10th hour of racing, that helps me push through. So I was asked, is there something that you want to contribute to the organization that you don't see being done at the New York State Youth Leadership Council? And I said, well, you know, I, I would really want some kind of space where people can ask questions anonymously, but can still look for help online. During this time, you know, Googling undocumented, you would just get all the anti-immigrant articles. There was stuff about like the DREAM Act, but I hadn't really seen like a place to ask questions. So the advice column, Ask Angie, came out of that. A lot of the questions that I got oftentimes weren't questions about anything. You know, they were just sharing about growing up undocumented, about their parents driving without a license, about, you know, being afraid for them. It was more like, this is everything that I've been through, and thank you so much for creating this space. And a lot of the questions that I, I would get were of, of people that knew what was best for them. They knew what was best for their families, but they just needed another person to bounce ideas off of or to just put it out there so that they weren't alone. The terror is always there for me. And, you know, I have now toured these works all over the world. But I die of stage fright. Like, it cost me so much to get up there. You know, um, the fear hasn't gone away. Only I'm showing up to it. And every matinee, no matter what the performance, no matter what country, the terror is still the same. And it's always there, except now I've set a precedence. Now I know I can show up to it. So it gets a little bit easier. Oh, this reminds me when I thought I was going to die and have a heart attack. When I made the decision to transition and to start taking testosterone, I knew that I would have to switch categories to try to continue racing and get therapeutic use exemptions, clearance in order to take testosterone. But what I really wanted at that time was just a fresh start. Start competing as male 
and not have to talk about my history or my past at all with anyone. But I also recognized that it was important that I actually do come out as a trans athlete, make it known so that other people could see a reflection of themselves. I didn't see role models that I could look to. It would have been a total game changer if I had seen a trans guy competing against guys. We all have a deep desire to see ourselves reflected in the place that we want to go. I want to be the person that I needed 10 years ago that would make my experience easier to navigate. Fortitude. You said you looked it up. What, yeah. What is the definition? Courage in pain or adversity. Courage Mental and, and emotional and strength in facing difficulty, adversity, danger, or temptation courageously. That is the spirit that Beckett taught me. It's, I'll go on. I can't go on. I must go on. I'll go on. I'm Not Running Away was produced by Brendan Baker. Special thanks to Chris Mosier, Angie Rivera, and Lisa Duan for sharing their stories. Score by Todd Dahlhoff, and the theme was played by Tony Shear. Pleasure Studies is executive produced by Robbie Lackritz and myself, Leslie Feist. Additional contributions from Andrew Whiteman and Elizabeth Barker. And is presented by Erios and Talkhouse.